Exodus 10, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy word. Take heed how you hear it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptian and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from the Lord's, excuse me, they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go. 
Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we seek your illumination. This is your word, and we need it. We need your Holy Spirit's ministry because we seek your wisdom and your mind, and we ask that you would reveal yourself especially to us in your word. We need it more than we need food or water. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So grant us understanding tonight on all these things that we study. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Something to tell your grandkids. Something to tell your grandkids. That's an expression we'll often employ when we get to bear witness to some momentous occasion of history. Oh, you should go. Just think. That'll be something you'll get to tell your grandchildren one day. You were there. We all probably know someone like that, someone who bore witness to a tremendous occasion. The journalist in Germany who was there when the Berlin Wall came down. The firefighter standing not far from the World Trade Center when the towers came plummeting to the ground on 9-11. Growing up as a boy, there was an African-American gentleman in my hometown who had, had been there in the crowd standing near the Lincoln Memorial when Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech from the steps of that monument. That's an occasion that, should the Lord tarry, you grow up and you get to tell your grandchildren, as momentous as it is. As we come to chapter 10 of Exodus tonight, Holy Scripture says that this plague that the Lord is about to send, this plague of locusts, will be so tremendous, so awful, of such epic and historical weight and proportion that it will be something to tell your grandkids. And that's really the first point of our sermon outline for us to think about this evening. First point being a wonder worth retelling. In this plague of locusts, we see a wonder worth retelling. You see there in the first two verses, the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Tell it to the next generation what wondrous things the Lord has done. Isn't that how the psalmist puts it? That's a foundational principle of of what we do as a church. It's a direct outflow of our, of our covenant theology. It's why we do what we do in our homes, in our Sunday school classes, in our catechism classes, in the discipleship of our covenant children. And that very principle is reflected here in the very opening of Exodus 10, in all, of all places, in a preface to a plague about locusts. There's still yet something reflected here of our principles of covenant theology. And that's exactly what Scripture does later, is it takes this injunction and does that very thing. I think especially of Psalm 78 and Psalm 105. I encourage you, maybe later on this evening, later on this week, go and read through those two Psalms. They make specific mention of the plagues. Just as a teaser, Psalm 78 verse 4 puts it like this. We will not hide these things from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. In our hymnal, we'll sing it sometimes, that same idea we find in Isaac Watts' paraphrase of Psalm 78. Let children hear the mighty deeds which God performed of old. 
if I can put it this way, missions starts at home. Missions starts at home. Yes, we tell of the Lord's wondrous deeds to our pagan friends and neighbors. Yes, we plant new churches and we send missionaries to reach the lost. Uh, of course we do. That's why we're praying for John Blevins and the Saints of Christ Church. That's why we're praying for Tom Matthews and Matt Lamus and Aaron Halbert and all of our other missionaries, Peter Zabo and so forth. Of course. Yes, we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ around the world. But that's because our covenant theology starts at home. For his promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. Covenant theology isn't just for satisfying cerebral curiosity. Covenant theology is not just for satisfying a cerebral curiosity. And sometimes we in the Presbyterian and Reformed world might, might err in that direction if we're not careful. No, it is more than just for that. It is for making disciples It is for furthering and perpetuating the glory and the marvelous grace of God Most High. You see it here in verse 2 of chapter 10. Tell it in the hearing of your son and grandson, and that's skipping ahead, that you may know that I am the Lord. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we were studying Psalm 22, the Psalm of Calvary, and we thought about how the Lord was going to do this? What what the psalmist proclaimed was one day going to happen. That the ends of the earth should turn to the Lord and the families of the nations should bow before him. Well, we saw right there at the end of that psalm that this worldwide missionary movement, if you like, this worldwide movement of telling of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has done it. That's the language of Psalm 22. Right there at the end of the psalm, it says this at verse 30 and into 31. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation... They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. God's glorious deeds, his mercies, and most especially his his death-shattering, redemption-securing, grace-abounding resurrection of Jesus Christ, those things are worth recounting. Covenant Presbyterian Church, do we love to recount God's wonders? Do we love to recount God's wonders? Are they sweet to us? Do you love to talk about them? Do you love to sing about them? Do you love to hear about them in the preaching? Or is it a tedious thing that grows stale with you and you find it boring and you're just looking at your watch waiting for this guy to wrap it up? This is why we do so much of what we do. Unto each other, unto our children, unto our children's children. And let me just say, so many of you are faithful in this. So many of you are faithful in this. Keep on. Well done. Keep praying with your little ones. Keep gathering around your living rooms or gathering around your kitchen tables with your Bibles for family worship. Keep singing God's songs. Keep telling the old, old story of God's wonder and power and love. That's a story worth retelling. And God loves to work grace into the hearts that receive the implanted word, as James says. Receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Proclaiming the word of God works. Hey, we prayed about that a few minutes ago. We are, we are inundated in an age, as the church has been in so many ages, 
of gimmicks and strategies and these alternative methods, anything we can do to get folks in the seats and anything we can do to get the numbers up and anything we can do to report higher conversion rates and higher baptism rates and what are we going to do to make God approachable? What are we got to do to make Jesus attractive to this post-Christian, post-truth, ever-secularizing world? May I suggest to you, brothers and sisters, what you already know to be true. It's that the Word of God works. It works. It's not flashy. It's not often exciting. But it works. It does what God has ordained it to do. So keep up the good work of recounting God's glories. Keep up the work of telling it to your little ones, telling it to each other, telling it to your neighbors, and telling it to any and all who would listen of the glories of God's wondrous grace. The Word of God works, and it's a wonder worth retelling. That's the first thing we want to see tonight from our passage in Exodus 10, a wonder worth retelling. But then secondly, and, and more lengthy, we see a command worth obeying. A command worth obeying. There at the end of verse 2, and there's that recurring theme again, we've seen all over the plagues, and we continue to see it all over Exodus. Why does God do what he does? He does it, there at the end of verse 2, so that you may know that I am the Lord. He does it for the fame of his own name. He does it for his own glory. That's why he does these things. Now, now that should have been Pharaoh's response to know that God is Lord and fall down before him in wonder and awe and adoration and worship and fealty. That should have been Pharaoh's response in light of the signs and wonders, in light of the harsh dealings, as God calls it there in verse 2. He ought to have humbled himself. He ought to have acknowledged He ought to have known that Yahweh is Lord and he ought to have given him the glory. But alas, God has hardened the hearts of Pharaoh and his servants, verse 1. And so we enter into another round of negotiations, as we've seen with so many of these plagues. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold... Tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. And as I read that text just now, given all the second person pronouns and possessive pronouns, the to you, and your land, and your houses, I am persuaded that again, as with the previous plagues, this plague befell Egypt and the people of Israel were supernaturally protected. As much as we ought to tell and retell the stories of God's wondrous glory to our children, <laughs> Pharaoh's servants were in no mood for such stories, were they? Do you sense the... the Do you get the sense of exasperation that comes from them here at this point in the text? There's dissension in the ranks. Pharaoh's servants are getting fed up. Now, are they they seeing past the propaganda that they've been inundated with their whole life of the supposed living deity on earth that Pharaoh was purported to be? Or have they frankly known all along that it's a sham and they've just been playing along, perhaps to spare their own lives, lest they speak against Pharaoh and get outside of his good graces. Who knows? But by now they are fed up. See, verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, 
that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Now, the supposed God-man is a politician at heart, and he succumbs to the pressure. So Moses and Aaron are called back in. Go, he tells them, Pharaoh said, go worship the Lord your God. But then almost a sort of an immediate afterthought attaches itself there at the tail end of that statement. But, 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 but just who will be going before you get out of here? Just who will be going? Pharaoh was suspicious. You see, Moses had been asking for permission to go and worship God all along through these plagues. He'd never actually come right out and said that once the Hebrews left, they were never going to be coming back. But Pharaoh was starting to get that hint, wasn't he? Moses answered, verse 9, We will go with our young and old, with our sons and daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh is indignant. You see his biting, sarcastic response there at verse 10? The Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go. This is not a benediction. The Lord be with you. Do you hear the blasphemy? Do you hear the scoffing in those words? This is is the wicked man of Psalm 1 personified. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Remember how sin gets its hooks into the heart of the wicked? And it leads them further and further down into the depths of depravity. First walking with the wicked, then slowing down and standing with sinners, and then even less than ambulatory, finally sitting comfortably, quite at home, in the seat of scoffers. Like the wicked men of Psalm 1, it is not enough for Pharaoh to sin in just ignoring God or in preventing God's people from worship. No, no. His heart hardened as it is into the further depravity of sin, it's not content until he scoffs at the Lord, mocking Moses. Do notice how he uses the proper name of the Lord? He doesn't just say God there. He says Lord, capital L-O-R-D, but not in a reverent way. No, Pharaoh's sin has given way to paranoia and obstinance. See the end there at verse 10? Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. Literally from the Hebrew, you have evil before your face. I'm not going to let you go. You, you've got some scheme. I, I don't know what you're up to, but it's, it's, it's going to be against me. It's going to be against my kingdom. It's going to be against my power. What are you up to? I'm not letting you go. So Pharaoh tries to get Moses to compromise again. Remember after the fourth plague, the, the plague of the flies, he had said, I will let you go, Moses. I'll let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Don't go too far. That's Exodus 8. Verse 28. Now this time, he was willing to let them go as far as they wanted, provided that they left behind their women and children. In effect, he would hold them hostage in order to guarantee that the husbands and fathers would come back to Egypt after they had performed you know, their nice little patronizing rituals to their God. Verse 11. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Negotiations had broken down, and he drove Moses and Aaron out of the palace. And as one commentator said, if he hadn't been such a fool, he would have braced himself for another plague. But he was just that fool, wasn't he? It's been said by so many people over the years, sin makes us stupid. Sin makes us foolish. 
It does, doesn't it? And that's evident in all kinds of ways all over the scripture. And we have all kinds of examples that we could likely cite from our own lives. But this principle is perhaps nowhere more clearly expressed than in the life and behavior of Pharaoh. The, the senselessness and the stupidity of sin that, that makes him given over to this foolishness. And so, verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left behind. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Did you pick up on that language there in that last verse echoing the language of Genesis chapter 1? This just keeps reinforcing that theme of God decreating Egypt in his judgment against them. Remember, God on the third day creates trees with their fruits and vegetation and plants. And in the end, remember, God gave Adam and Eve every green plant for food, creation. Now here with Egypt, not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Decreation. Over and over again, this theme keeps popping up for us to ponder. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around how awful, how, how terrifying a plague of locusts would be. Now, folks in Africa and Central Asia, though, they can imagine it. Scientists report that the daily consumption of a locust equals its own weight. Now, that may not sound like much, but a full-scale swarm that covers several hundred miles with between 100 and 200 million locusts per mile, that can consume an awful lot. Back in 1988, the Chicago Tribune reported billions of locusts are moving across North Africa in the worst plague since 1954, blotting out the sun and settling on the land like a black, ravenous carpet to strip it clean of vegetation. In some places, the density of that infestation in 1988 reached 10,000 locusts per 10 square feet. You see how scripture describes this phenomenon? Verse 15. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. A thick black wave flooding the fields and flooding the landscape for miles, hopping into people's homes. Voracious appetites devouring so that neither tree nor plant was left. Not a green thing remained. It was devastating. And so thick and concentrated that it darkened the land, which, by the way, seems to be something of a, of a dark precursor to the very next plague, which is to come. Now, you thought this darkness was dreadful. Just wait for plague number nine, which itself is a precursor for plague number ten. The heightening and the intensity of these plagues of judgment that God is, is, is breaking upon Egypt just keep on increasing in their intensity and severity. It was yet another humiliation for Egypt's gods, as we've seen over and over again with these plagues. Now, which god was this plague assaulting? 
Well, likely Min, who is the patron of the crops. Uh, perhaps it may have been Isis, the goddess of life. Possibly Nepri, the god of grain. Uh, Anubis was the guardian of the fields. Senehem was the divine protector against pests. Or maybe Newt, the sky goddess. Or Osiris, another god of crops and fertility. There's an ancient Egyptian stone pillar, uh, a stele, which is a, 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 of, of which it describes a fine field which the gods protected against grasshoppers. This ancient obelisk may have been around roughly the time uh, of the Hebrews, maybe a little bit before that. And so it's fascinating that this obelisk was erected in memoriam for some great plague sweeping through, and yet somehow the gods and goddesses, the deities of Egypt, protected the fields from grasshoppers. But not this time. Not this time. Yet again, Egypt's gods failed. Well, what happened next? Well, we've become accustomed to this familiar pattern from Pharaoh, haven't we? Verse 16. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Verse 18, Moses does as Pharaoh asks. And verses 19 and 20, the plague is lifted and all is taken away. The Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, right? So this east wind, which, by the way, was a rarity for Egypt, this east wind brings in the plague. God sends a west wind to drive the the plague out, drive out the locusts, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. Now, once again, God in his brilliance and in the brilliance of Scripture and an Old Testament narrative loves to do this. It gives us a preview of coming attractions. Very soon, Pharaoh's army would be destroyed in much the same way, in exactly the same place, driven, in a manner, into the Red Sea and destroyed. What God does to the locusts here is but a preview of things yet to come. But as we might have guessed, Pharaoh was all words, and it was a sham of a repentance on his part. God's not duped, though. Pharaoh might have duped himself for a moment, but God is not deceived. Once again, he seems seems broken up about it, and so once again, he hastily calls for Moses and Aaron. Verse 16, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God. Pharaoh gets incrementally close, do you see? Incrementally closer once again. In previous plagues, now what do we mean by that? Well, in previous plagues, he admitted no wrong. He would be annoyed, he would be angry, he'd be frustrated by these devastating things that were happening to his kingdom. And he would call in Moses to pray for him and to lift the misery, but he didn't admit to any sin on his part. By the time we get to the seventh plague of hail, he says there in chapter 9, verse 27, Pharaoh says, this time I have sinned. <laughs> this time. As if you haven't sinned the previous six times. But still, getting there. And now here in chapter 10, verse 17, he admits sin. And this time he even asks for forgiveness. Forgive my sin, please, only this once. Ah, alas, still minimizing his sin. Only this once. Speaking as if he had not sinned before. Perhaps thinking that he would not sin again in the future. He would not need further forgiveness down the road. Forgive me for this thing. 
And please tell your God to lift this curse from us. Yet again, it was a form of manipulation, attempted manipulation of Moses' God. Pharaoh wasn't getting it. You can't dupe this God. Haven't you seen it yet? And do notice once again, Pharaoh asks Moses and Aaron to pray on his behalf. Pharaoh should have humbled himself before the Lord and cried out to God himself, pleading before the Lord in prayer on his knees. But again, he does not. Have you ever heard the expression, a condemning faith? A condemning faith? A condemning faith is really no faith at all. Here's how Charles Spurgeon explains it. There is a thing called a justifying faith and another thing called a condemning faith. What, say you? Does faith ever condemn men? He explains, yes, when men have enough faith to know that there is a God who sends judgments upon them, that nothing can remove those judgments but the hand that sent them, and that prayer moves that hand. There are persons who yet never pray themselves, but eagerly cry to friends, entreat the Lord for me. There is a measure of faith which goes to increase a man's condemnation, since he ought to know that if what he believes is true, then the proper thing is to pray himself. Close quote. Pharaoh's confession is a false confession, with no true repentance, no true earnestness, no true piety or sincerity of faith on his part. He takes this priestly figure, Moses and Aaron, for the Hebrews' God, and says, go say a little prayer for me, would you? Go do the thing. Go speak to your God and call this thing off. As we see in verse 20, he did not let the people go. We are reminded, yet again, that mere remorse is not the same as true repentance. Mere remorse is not the same as true repentance. Repentance is an action word. It must involve real action, a a real turning away from one's sins, efforts to make amends and restoration, to, to, to put in practice and put safeguards which demonstrate that one is striving to cease these sinful practices and avoid them again in the future and to strive henceforth to do the right thing, to do the godly thing. Our shorter catechism puts it like this. Question 87, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Do you know that, boys and girls? It's, it's one thing to say that you're sorry when you get caught, when you do something wrong, but do you mean it? How do you show that you mean it? Do your parents ever ask you that? I know we say that in our household a fair bit. A fair bit. It's one thing to say you're sorry. How are you going to show that you're sorry? It's one thing to say you're sorry. How do you sincerely? It's another thing to sincerely mean it. The locusts were a warning to Pharaoh. And they stand as a warning to us also because like so many plagues from the Exodus, they are a preview of the final tribulation. That's why we read what we did from the Apostle John in Revelation 9. As he does, he loves to borrow imagery from the Exodus. Remember what we heard? Revelation 9. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the scorpions of the earth. They They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And in those days, people will seek death 
and will not find it. See, there's going to be a locust plague to end all locust plagues. Far more terrible, more awfully amplified than what befalls Egypt. Is there any way to escape this terrible plague? Of course there is. What Pharaoh should have done is followed Moses' injunction, and he should have obeyed God. Right? Obedience is what God commanded, and that would have resulted in his safety. Now you say, obedience leads to saving? Well, in one sense, in one sense, yes. Not in the sense of obeying God's law and thus meriting salvation. No, no. But obeying God's summons, his beckoning unto life, yes. Obey God, and there you will find life and pardon and refuge. Remember what the Apostle Paul says as he's preaching before the the Areopagus in Athens, there on Mars Hill, Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Or, to put it in the language of our Westminster Confession in chapter 3, abundant consolation, abundant comfort belongs to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Obey the gospel. What does that mean? Turn and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Obey this life-giving summons, Pharaoh. Obey it. Obey God's commands. And you obey it too, you who live in this new covenant era. Obey that life-giving summons. And as you turn from the putrid bankruptcy of sin, know that the Jehovah of Exodus is the same God of the Gospel of Luke. He is the same God. Know that you are turning not toward a, a cold, reluctant, aloof austere God, a God who is begrudgingly, with his arm twisted, showing you mercy. No, but you turn rather to a God and Father, like the Father to his prodigal son in Luke's gospel, who runs to meet his returning child, the God who stands ready to receive the sinner, arms wide with the embrace of mercy. This is the God whom you serve. This is the God to whom you turn. This is the God whom we worship and adore. Repent, And believe and find refuge and pardon and cleansing and everlasting safety in the risen Lord Jesus. After all, according to Psalm 18, the Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer, our God and our shield. And he is, Psalm 4, and he alone is the one that makest me dwell in safety. Praise God for his word for us. Excuse me, praise God for his word to us tonight. From Exodus. Praise God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for Exodus 10. And even in pondering the devastation of locusts, we pray that you would drive us to find those green pastures, those verdant pastures of safety, which are alone found in your word and in Christ your Son. Would you seal your word to our hearts this night and all for his sake. Amen.